It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode discusses the murder of two girls, and it also contains some profanity. This episode is going to be all about Richard or Rick Allen, the man who is recently accused of murdering Liberty German, and Abigail Williams in February of 2017. We're going to confirm some details on how his arrest came about. We'll also be talking to some people who knew Richard, or Rick as they called him, at one point in his life. Then we'll hear from Alan himself through a jailhouse letter he sent to the court recently. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet 
gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is... The Delphi Murders. Who is Rick Allen? So to start with, we'll read you some quotes from three former classmates of Rick or Ricky Allen. They attended North Miami High School with him in Miami County, Indiana. We're not going to use their real names to protect their privacy. We'll just call them Gabriella, Edward, and Amanda. You'll often find in crime stories, reporters go to former classmates and people like that to speak about the, the perpetrator, the accused in this case about what they were like, and there's a reason for that. It's because they knew the person at a pretty formative time in their life, but they're not as close as family members who might be less inclined to talk. So keep in mind that as we kind of read these quotes, because people change a lot over the years for the for good and for ill, and who somebody was in high school is not necessarily, you know, predestined who they'll become as an adult, but it can give us some clues about their personality and their formative years. So hopefully this can add some biographical information about Rick Allen and the kind of person he is. Yes. And also another reason why people will often talk with school classmates of someone is it's easy to figure out who they are. All you really have to do is get a hold of a high school yearbook. Precisely. And in fact, uh, through these people we spoke with, we were able to get access to some of the yearbooks including ones that had pictures and information about uh, Rick Allen. Absolutely. So we actually were able to view all of his high school yearbook photos, starting uh, as a freshman. As you can imagine, with a name like Allen, he tended to be towards the front of these yearbooks. And freshman year, the photo just, he really looks so different than he does now. You know, he's hes a kid. Um, but he has like kind of a close cropped buzz cut, Looks very young. Looks honestly more like a middle schooler than a high schooler. Uh, we had uh, these uh, folks that we spoke to said he was one of the smaller boys in the grade in terms of height. Uh, sophomore year, he's wearing a plaid shirt. His hair is even closer cropped. He's smiling. Again, just looks like a kid. It's just a black and white photo that you would expect to see in an old yearbook. From junior year, he has a mullet. So sort of reflecting the styles of the time more This so. would have been what, the late 80s? Um, this would have been the late 80s, early 90s, yeah. So 
uh, t-shirt mullet, starting to look a bit older. And then senior year, uh, senior year, he has his portrait. It's in color. You can kind of recognize, I think, the eyes a little bit more. He's wearing a button-down shirt, uh, basically has a buzz cut again, and, you know, certainly looks quite different from the mugshot that we all saw once this arrest happened. But we're going to be kind of taking a look at Rick or Ricky and who he was during these years through the eyes of his classmates and people who knew him at the time. So we talked to a few of his high school classmates, as Anya said. And to protect their privacy, not only are we not using their real names, we're also not going to be using their voices. We had our recordings of our conversations with them transcribed, and so the two of us will be reading the quotes from them. And you'll hear this sound effect whenever we're reading an excerpt of their quotes in their interviews with us. So here's what Gabriella had to say about not only Rick, but his family, which consisted of his two parents and a younger sister. Very, very just normal, small-town American family. Just normal. His sister and I would sometimes carpool together to school when we were teenagers. And Ricky was a little bit older than us. Gabriella didn't remember many activities that Rick was involved in high school, and she noted that his senior page didn't even have a quote, which in retrospect she found a little odd. In fairness, I was in high school in roughly the same era. Uh, My senior page didn't have a quote that I can recall. Yeah, probably shouldn't read too much into it, but it it was something that she mentioned. Uh, I had had probably too many quotes in my senior high school yearbook. Now, basically, Gabriella's assessment of Rick was that he was just a very quiet guy, not somebody who raised any red flags, not somebody you would be worried about necessarily, just kind of a quiet fade into the background kind of person. I'm sure some of us were like that in high school, and maybe some of us knew people like that in high school. It's not necessarily anything to be alarmed about. Some people are just shy or quiet, and that's okay. And that's sort of what we were getting from her. One thing that we've been tracking down with Rick Allen a little bit is, you know, where did he live other than Mexico, his hometown, and Delphi, where he moved and where he was recently arrested? And one place that comes up a lot is actually Peru, Indiana, in Miami County, That's no surprise. Peru and Mexico in Indiana are right next to each other. And Gabriella was able to tell us about some of the intermingling that went on back then between kids from Peru and kids from Mexico, Denver, and other towns that fed into the North Miami High School. Definitely. Peru and North Miami kids intermingled. Friendships, marriages, absolutely. When we'd say, hey, I'm going to town, that meant you were going to Peru, because that was the closest bigger town to Mexico and Denver. So that's some of the context we got from Gabriella, and I think we'll leave her for now, but we will be coming back later to her about a story that she heard sort of circulating around the Mexico circles uh, about something involving Rick Allen that is a little bit more pertinent to the Delphi case. And more recent, but right now we're talking about his high school days. So why don't we move on to Edward? or rather, again, the person we're calling Edward. Edward was a few grades above Rick Allen when he went to high school, but he did play baseball and like army games with Rick when he was growing up. Here's what he had to say about those uh, days. I can speak for Rick as a child. We played baseball together. This is a small town of 350 people. 
We played baseball in the summertime, traded baseball cards, played army with my next-door neighbor and Ricky. I would have never guessed when this first came out. When I see that picture of Ricky, I was like, there's no way. I, I guess this is also kind of a cliche in true crime, is that when a person is uh, arrested or accused of a crime, the people who knew that person are always surprised. It is a cliche, but frankly, I think it's one that speaks well of people, because if, if someone's not doing anything outwardly wrong, being incredibly suspicious of people that you feel you know is is not exactly a good look. So I can understand that if you're saying, this is a guy who was always very nice to me, I never heard about him going after anyone or being creepy with anyone, why would you be suspicious of that person? And I think that's something that, you know, people kind of get upset when they hear that cliche in true crime. But I think it's important to remember, like, what if this was your life? What if we're talking about somebody that you knew pretty well when you were kids or when you were growing up or at some point in your life through your job or social life? Is it is it normal to just assume everyone is secretly have some very dark secrets? I, I don't think that's good. It's certainly not normal. It's certainly not healthy. No. Uh, I think everybody has a tendency to assume that what is evil is different. It's foreign to your own experience. And so you don't necessarily see that or expect to see that in the people who populate your day-to-day world. Absolutely. And I'd like to add, all of the classmates we spoke to, nobody was defensive. Nobody said, absolutely not, couldn't be him. They basically were open-minded and saying, like, this is very different from the person I once knew, but I'm open-minded and I will be willing to hear the evidence for and against once that comes out. And I'm really horrified by the possibility that this person that just seemed like a nice, normal guy could be behind it. So no one was reflexively, like, defensive or anything like that. Exactly. And more often people would say things like what Edward said here. One thing I want to say is that I've known Rick's parents all my life, and they're good people. If Rick did or didn't do this, he's a 50-year-old man, and he made his choices. I still can't believe that the guy I remember would do anything like this. But there's a lot people can change in 30 years. Absolutely. So I think people are certainly reacting with... I'd like to learn more information, but if this is true, I'm open to that information and, you know, take it very seriously, essentially. We also spoke with somebody who was in the same year as Rick in high school. We'll be calling her Amanda. She was able to fill us in on something that we verified through public records, which was that Rick Allen's grandfather was a man named Homer D. Allen, And he was actually the elementary school principal locally. In 1963, the Mitchell Tribune reported that he first went to work for the Miami Consolidated School District, which, of course, is north of Peru. And his role was basically the supervising principal for the elementary schools that pulled from um, towns like Mexico, Chile, Gilead, and Macy. And some background about Homer, who was, you know, a public figure locally and relatively well-known, as, as we understand it. He had degrees from Huron High School. He went to Anderson College, Ball State Teachers College, and he'd previously taught at Lakeland Community Schools in Syracuse, Indiana. He's since passed away, but it's interesting that there's sort of a family tie to somebody who would have been very much in, um, you know, part of the community and a kind of a, 
an important member of the community. And uh, what Amanda was able to tell us is that she does kind of remember people teasing Rick in school about that. You know, your grandpa's the principal. Not much of a sick burn, in my opinion, but just just something, you know, that she was able to remember slightly. She described Mexico and the area around it as it's not very big. It's just a little cornfield county type school. And here's what Amanda said about Rick himself. From what I remember, he was pretty quiet. We haven't really had any connections since graduating in 1991, which is a lifetime ago. But I do remember that he was quiet. But he was also one of those guys that if he told you something funny, it was like a zinger out of nowhere. A lot of my classmates, they're like, man, I don't even remember who you're talking about. And Amanda also remembered one particular detail about Rick that sort of stands out to her now. I watch bodies and stuff. Just the thing I do. I didn't put it together until today, but he was one of those people who kind of walked closed. Does that make sense? How some people are like, oh my gosh, here I am, shoulders open and everything. I just remember Rick being a little hunched. A little bit like, I'm keeping to myself, nobody look at me. Another thing I found interesting in our conversation with Amanda was that she told us about an encounter with Rick she had just a few years ago. I lived in Peru in 2016 and 2017, probably about four or five blocks from the CVS. I remember going in there one day to get batteries or something. I talked to the cashier, you know, good day, blah, blah. And there's a guy standing behind her with a clipboard, you know, like how they do. He goes, hey, how you doing? And I look up and say, good. But I'm like, I know that voice. And then I looked at his name tag and I was like, oh, my God, Ricky Allen. And he was like, I don't know who you are. It was very cordial, but I remembered what pulled me to his name tag was his voice. When he talked, it was slow, but not stupid, if that makes sense. There was no excitement with the way that he talked. So when he spoke to me that day and I was just looking down at my shit on the counter, I was like, that sounds really familiar. We asked Amanda if she thought his voice sounded like the voice recorded on Libby's phone. She said that she did not want to speculate too much, but that it was close. And when she listened to it again with all of this in mind, it gave her chills. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one -on -one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. 
This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So let's take a moment to jump back to our interview with Gabriella, one of Rick's former classmates at North Miami High School. Yes, because Amanda there just took us up to 2016, 2017, and Gabrielle can tell us a little bit more. He was interviewed after the murders happened. Police did interview him. And I got that through his wife telling mutual friends that that happened. She played it off more like he was just part of the community and they were interviewing everybody in the community. And that's why he was interviewed right away. But I don't know if there was more than that. Actually, the story that his wife told people wasn't quite true. Uh, Russ McQuaid of Channel 59 here in Indianapolis reported that actually... Alan went to the police himself and identified himself as someone who was at the trails at roughly the time of the murders. So naturally, police at that time were interested in talking to him for whatever reasons. Maybe this is something we can discuss in the future. Uh, He got off the radar and he wasn't really a target of the investigation, wasn't really a focus of the investigation for a while. And obviously, at some point, that changed. And there's been speculation about what it was that made that change. Some people have said that Kathy Walker Allen, Rick's wife, tipped police off after she either found something or became suspicious. That's been one of the persistent rumors out there about how Rick Allen was arrested. And we can confirm that that's not the case. But why don't we talk a little bit about Kathy Walker, Alan, before we continue. So unlike her husband, Rick Allen, Kathy Walker Allen actually attended Peru High School. So that kind of goes back to some of the intermingling that we discussed earlier between the two schools. We received from a tipster a photograph from the 1991 yearbook, and um, that was the year she graduated as well. She and Rick are the same age. And it, it depicts a young girl with very, very 80s perm hair, um, kind of the style of the time again. They were married when they were both 19, very young, 
but certainly a long-lasting marriage. And their marriage record reveals few items of interest, nothing really explosive, just that they're the same age. They're both from Indiana. Um, they both graduated recently in 1991 and, and then were married shortly afterwards in November of that year. At the time, Kathy was an employee at the Wendy's in Logansport, so just kind of working uh, you know, a retail job, a fast food job at that point. And at that point, Richard, or Rick, was working sales and delivery at Mr. Steve's RV. So you don't really get a lot of information. This is a young couple. They're getting married straight out of high school and going to make a life together. You know, not really seeing any red flags just from some of these documents or yearbook photos, but hopefully it can kind of go towards everyone's understanding of who are these people and what's going on. And again, we can confirm that uh, Kathy Walker Allen did not tip her husband into the Delphi murder investigation. Another rumor we heard was that it was Rick Allen's brother who tipped him in. And uh, our understanding is that he does not have a brother, that the family consisted of his parents, him, and his sister. And so obviously there, there would be no brother to tip him in. And we've also heard that it could have been his his daughter that he shared with Kathy uh, or another relative and or a family friend. And we can say now nobody tipped him in. That's not how he came back on the radar. So we want to debunk all those rumors that are sort of swirling around here right now. There was even a rumor. There was even a rumor. And this astonished us. Uh, my sister told us that she read on the Internet that Anya and I tipped him in. And that's very flattering, but it's not no, true. No one, yeah, this, this has been, we can confirm today exactly how, or at least more of an outline of how police came upon this man once again. Basically, Rick Allen came back on the radar after somebody connected to the Delphi investigation was going through old tips, came upon a tip, came upon came upon some sort of file or documentation regarding Rick Allen and basically looked at it and thought that it needed a second look. And that second look was given and that started the chain of events that ultimately led to the arrest of Rick Allen. Yes, but the actions of somebody affiliated with the investigation was the catalyst for this recent arrest. And it was not a tip it was, as far as we know, not anything that anyone on the outside did. It was this sort of reviewing. And we've no, we know from, from knowing how the investigation works and just from various public statements uh, and, and just, you know, what you could imagine is that there are so many tips to go through. There's so many um, different elements here that it behooves the investigators and those associated with the investigation to continuously look through and say, wait, what's this? Do we need to look at this again? You know, I mean, there was a whole 2019 whole new direction press conference sort of that got to that. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be a case of someone overlooking something because it's, there's always the possibility that something that didn't seem relevant in 2017, maybe you've gotten a new piece of information in 2018 that makes that information from 2017 seem more relevant. So it's always very crucial to go back and review case records. And that was being done here by someone affiliated with the investigation. Now, I'd like to jump back just for a second 
We talked about how Rick Allen initially came on the radar because of his own actions. He went to the police and indicated he was there. Is it unusual for a person connected to a crime to go to police and say, I was there? Well, I'm certainly no criminal profiler, and I wouldn't call myself necessarily a, an expert in the psychology of criminality. But I can name at least one high-profile situation where such a thing did happen and also involved the murder of two little girls. And that, of course, is the case of the Lyons sisters. There's a really terrific book called The Last Stone about this case. It's by Mark Bowden, a journalist. And he basically documents a just kind of grueling and um, wild story of a man who came forward early in that investigation. Um, it involved the disappearance of two sisters from a mall in the seventies, I believe. And this man basically said, I saw them talking to another man, just wanted to tip this off. And basically due to a number of factors, um, including his own, you know, sort of criminal history, investigators years and years, decades later ended up focusing back on him and said, you came forward with this kind of nonsense tip why did you do that? And through a series of interviews and kind of chipping away the, at the facts over time, they came up with a theory and were able to basically prove that he had been involved in the kidnapping and murder of these two girls. So uh, whether it's because they want to control the police and set them off on a wrong turn or whether it's because they're curious and they get some sort of satisfaction from seeing the harm that they've caused, or whether it's because they just want to know exactly what police know and get a sense, like, am I on the radar? What's going on? Or they want to establish themselves as a helpful citizen who, you know, is above suspicion. You do have cases of serious crimes where criminals or perpetrators will come forward early on for whatever reason. And that may have been what happened here. Of course, uh, I'm hedging because there is in this country a presumption of innocence. A person has to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. And that seems especially important now because we all know that Rick Allen has been arrested. But because the probable cause affidavit has been sealed, none of us knows definitively what any of the evidence against him may be. And in fact, uh, at this date, at this time we're recording, we're not even certain he has an attorney, which kind of brings us to a letter that Richard Allen himself wrote to the court. We'll have Kevin read that letter aloud, and then we'll discuss and analyze it. In the cause listed above, I, Richard M. Allen, hereby throw myself at the mercy of the court. I am begging to be provided with legal assistance in a public defender or whatever help is available. In my initial hearing on October 28, 2022, I asked to find a representation for myself. However, at the time, I had no clue how expensive it would be just to talk to someone. I also did not realize what my wife and I's immediate financial situation was going to be. We have both been forced to immediately abandon employment, myself due to incarceration, and my wife for her personal safety. 
she has had to abandon our house for her own safety. What little reserve there is will fail to even maintain the original residence. Again, I throw myself at the mercy of the court. Please provide me whatever assistance you may. Thank you for your time in this most urgent matter. Sincerely, Richard M. Allen. So, yeah, that's certainly an interesting letter. And I'll note that that, I believe, Kevin, is like a handwritten letter mailed from the White County Jail where he had previously been incarcerated. Yes. Now he has been transferred into state custody. There have been rumors about what state institution that might be, but there's been no confirmation about where exactly he is now. So... So this does this letter does provide some context about some things that I know you and I have been somewhat concerned about and that others in the media have been somewhat concerned about. Russ McQuaid from Fox 59 actually wrote and uh, you know put out a, a report sort of dealing with some of the issues of rights and, and the rights of a person who's been accused and, you know, having a defense attorney when you're facing especially such a serious set of charges is really crucial. That's how our system works. And when we called around Delphi law, you know, uh, legal firms and everybody was saying, we don't know what's going on. And, you know, the Indiana Public Defenders Council had no idea what was going on. I think we were becoming a bit like, what's going on here? Why does this man not have an attorney? And I think you raised an interesting thing when you talked about some of your experience in court. I've been in court at different times waiting for different cases to be called. I've been sitting there with other attorneys, and sometimes a, a person would be brought in facing criminal charges, and he wouldn't have an attorney represent him. And in those cases, the judges would literally just look around the courtroom, point to a lawyer, and say, okay, you represent him for at least the next few minutes, because he felt it was so important that the accused man had the benefit of at least some legal counsel immediately even if it's not permanent those those lawyers who are kind of you know basically uh dragooned into representing someone they're not going to be their attorney forever and there's going to be a point where there's going to be a handoff but it's sort of to cover your bases going forward you know at least for a brief period so we were pretty confused of why alan was not given that seemingly and uh this maybe explains some of it that it sounds like in his initial hearing, he basically said, I will pay for my own attorney. I want to hire my own counsel. You know, public defenders do incredible work, but there also is an issue in many areas where a public defender may be overworked and overtaxed and overburdened with many cases. So the thinking there would be if I'm paying for my own attorney, he's prioritizing me essentially. But it sounds like, understandably that did not happen because as anyone will tell you when you're talking about things like attorney's fees, I mean, that's a, that's a ton of money. Especially for something as complicated as this case will prove to be. Hopefully he will be appointed competent counsel soon. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It's obviously a source of concern that this person has been arrested. We don't know where he is in the system. He doesn't have an attorney as far as we know. And we also don't know what any of the evidence against him is. And effectively, you have a situation where 
you know, this this case is certainly a major issue in the media. And that's good. Abby and Libby deserve justice. And, you know, Superintendent Doug Carter of the Indiana State Police at the press conference noted that the, the media pressure has helped spur things along to a certain extent. That being said, the media putting out this man's face, identity, and then we don't know what the evidence is against him, you know, it does kind of make you somewhat uneasy. Basically, the government, as represented by Carroll County, is saying, just trust us. The evidence is good, and he's in he's in a safe place wherever he is. Uh, he'll get a lawyer eventually. And I'm sure the people in Carroll County who are making those decisions are all very good and trustworthy people. But uh, I think, to paraphrase uh, our former president, Ronald Reagan, when it comes to a government exercising police powers, it's important to trust but verify. Yes. So I think... We would certainly feel better, and I think a lot of people observing this case would certainly feel better if it was, you know, publicized that he was receiving counsel, competent counsel, and that, um, you know, the system was working as it normally does in pretty much most other cases, as far as we understand it. We've talked to other prosecutors, other attorneys, and they describe what is currently happening as unprecedented. And it makes me uneasy when you do something unprecedented in a case as important as this, because everything that happens in this case is going to be scrutinized intensely. And if there are any mistakes made, they will be noticed and there will be consequences. And none of us want anything to happen to jeopardize justice for Abby and Libby. Yes, everybody wants to see the person who killed Abby and Libby receive their just punishment and be held accountable for their heinous actions. Nobody wants to see an innocent man go down for that. I'm not saying that either of those things is at risk of happening there. It's just that when you can, when you see the process working as it typically does, that certainly gives you a lot more confidence in the process when things are happening that typically don't happen. You know, that that's certainly room to certainly ask questions. Now I'll note that the tone of his letter, Rick Allen was not, hurling any recriminations around himself, uh, basically saying, thought I could get a private attorney. I can't, you know, and, and we can certainly, you know, him being incarcerated and no longer being able to work at the CVS in Delphi. And we know where his wife works, but we're not going to say that just because, you know, safety concerns being cited, um, you know, understandable can't go into work. This is like the highest profile case happening in Indiana, maybe in some ways happening in the country. So uh, that's that's all certainly fair. Um, but hopefully they can get this defense attorney thing settled pretty quickly because it's just, um, you know, wh- I mean, from a legal standpoint, Kevin, I mean, e- if he waived his rights and then confessed to the crime, would that be a problem, the fact that he does not have an attorney present with him? It could potentially be a problem because a defense attorney could later come in and say he didn't knowingly waive his rights or he was pressured or whatever. It's really best to have all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed. Yes. And it's not a matter of us being bleeding hearts who, you know, like. We want justice. Yes. We want justice. And if mistakes are made in the process, that could endanger justice. Yes. 
And if you're doing something unprecedented, that means you're potentially making a mistake that could cause problems down the road. Uh, before we leave the subject of Richard Allen, I want to stress if you don't try to harass people who know him, leave his daughter alone, leave his wife alone. Leave his parents alone. Leave his parents alone. Um, don't, don't do anything that could jeopardize an investigation. Don't do anything that would jeopardize an investigation by potentially contaminating evidence. We can all make assumptions, too, about what people should know about people they love. But let's all be honest. I mean, we don't know all the facts at this point. And also keep in mind that spouses have been known to successfully keep secrets from each other. I'm sure most of us know people who were in marriages where one partner cheated without the other partner knowing it. Partners are capable of keeping secrets from one another. So don't jump to any conclusions about guilt and don't jump to any conclusions about what the spouse may or may not have known. Yeah, we just can't know. We know it, you know, as as, as, you've said this sometimes, Kevin, you know, all marriages are a mystery from the outside. So, you know, we just can't know the details until those come out publicly. And I think it's 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 fair. You can always reserve judgment for a time where you have more facts. And that's usually the prudent thing to do. So we would encourage that. And we would also very much encourage anyone who had contact with this Rick Allen person even if you don't feel you have explosive information, um, you never know what could be helpful to law enforcement. So please consider tipping it to law enforcement. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can reach us at murdersheet at gmail.com. But please tip law enforcement first if you have information on this person. Uh, we know that they want more to basically be able to fill in this whole situation. And uh, that that's a helpful thing to do at this time if you're interested in helping law enforcement. Now, before we wrap up this episode, why don't you tell us what's going on with Kagan Klein? Well, there's been a new development in Kagan Klein's case that's really caught our eye. Maybe Kevin can read the latest filing in his case. Comes now the defendant Kagan Klein by counsel Andrew Ackie and respectfully request that the court continue the jury trial scheduled on January 18th, 2023. In support of said motion, the defendant states as follows. The parties are currently engaged in negotiations. So there was a bit more to the motion than that, but what I read seems to be the relevant part. He's requesting a continuance, And he's requesting a continuance because the parties are in negotiations. So we've been here before, (laughs) recently. Uh, Yes. He he previously requested a continuance due to negotiations and was granted one. And that was a time where a plea deal seemed to be on the table for Kagan. Yes. Then we got to the pretrial conference a a few weeks ago. And no talk of a plea no deal. talk of a plea deal, no negotiations. Full speed ahead. Let's have a trial in January. Let's go. And so this is I, I view this and maybe I will be curious to know what you think, because we're kind of getting this news now as we recorded that the continuance was granted. Yes. 
The continuance was granted. The trial is now scheduled for May 2023, roughly six months from now. But the final pretrial conference shall remain as scheduled on December 22nd. Okay, so what do we make of this? What do we make of this? This is, I think, interesting. Because if you have a situation where someone is in negotiations, they seemingly fall apart to the extent that everybody's going to go forward with a trial, and then the negotiations are back on, that seems like kind of a pivot. That seems like kind of a pivot. And uh, I, I guess the question we all have is the same. Does Kagan Klein have information related to Rick Allen that is so crucial that the prosecutors would be willing to bargain with him for it. And all we can say is negotiations are in process. We don't know if those negotiations involve any information about Rick Allen. We don't know if those negotiations regarding any information related to Delphi. So all we have is speculation. Yes. But it's very interesting. I This is interesting. We did not necessarily see this coming, given the full steam ahead pre-trial conference, I think it's fair to say. So when this popped up on our radar, we were kind of very interested. It's one that so much that happens in this case is simultaneously surprising and not surprising. Yeah, that's true. Because often it seems that as we get close to a trial date for Kagan, suddenly we hear about negotiations and process or things like that and things get delayed. So I imagine, again, this is speculation, but perhaps when he gets closer to a trial date and thinks about what he might face, perhaps he gets a little uneasy. I don't know. But you would imagine that if prosecutors and law enforcement felt that he had nothing to offer, there would be counter motions filed by the prosecution saying, we're not doing this again. Yes. And I would also imagine, again, this is speculation. A lot of us are tired of how this Kagan Klein case keeps getting dragged out. I would imagine that the prosecutors are also tired of that. And I would imagine his defense attorneys are tired of that. And so for it to be kept getting dragged out and delayed suggests something's going on. If it out. wasn't important, I don't think it would get dragged out any more than it has already because it's a waste of money and time for everybody, frankly. But the fact that they kind of keep playing Kagan's little games kind of indicates that they view it as at least something worth trying. So we'll definitely be looking for updates about both Kagan Klein's case and Rick Allen's case going forward. If you have any tips for us, email murdersheet at gmail.com. But if it's Regarding the investigation, or it may have investigative value, please tip police first. Before we go, let's end with one more quote from Edward, who, of course, knew Rick Allen growing up. I don't know if he did it or not. I'm not accusing anybody. If he did it, I hope he gets what he deserves. But the Rick I knew, I cared about the guy. He wasn't a violent person. His parents are fantastic people. But that don't make the person who he grew up to be so. So that's all I have to say about that. I feel for the two girls' families too. But whatever Rick did, that was on him. A 50-year-old man who made his own choices. 
If he did do it, I hope he gets everything he has coming to him. If you have any information pertaining to the Delphi case, please call 844-459-5786 or email abbyandlibbytip at caco.shrf.com. Thank you. We want to thank all of our sources who helped us out with this episode. We'd also like to hat tip the Kokomo Morning Times, the Logan's Fort Faroes Tribune, and the South Bend Tribune. Uh, we utilize reporting from each of those newspapers. And we want to thank the Danville Library for some research assistance with this. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.